Welcome to the Three P's of Cancer podcast, where we'll discuss prevention, preparedness, and progress in cancer treatments and research. Brought to you by the University of Michigan Rogel Cancer Center. I'm Scott Redding. We're here with Dr. Dan Hayes, the Stuart B. Padnos Professor of Breast Cancer Research and the Clinical Director of the Breast Oncology Program at the Rogel Cancer Center. Dan has close to 40 years of oncology practice, as well as a member of many medical and oncological organizations. While his clinical and research focus is on breast cancer, his years of experience and participation in national organizations give him a deeper perspective on where cancer care has been, where it's at now, and what the future might look like. Welcome, Dan. Thanks, Scott. Let's start off with probably the most sought-after answer around cancer. When are we going to cure it? Yeah, I probably get that question once a month, um, uh, especially when I was the president of ASCO, the American Society of Clinical Oncology. And my answer actually is that we already do. We, we cure a lot of cancers with a combination of surgery and radiation and systemic therapies like chemotherapy and, and others, uh, endocrine therapy, now more recently uh, immunologic therapies. It's that the word cancer is not a single bean. Um, it's like, when are we going to cure diseases? Well, there are a lot of different diseases. There are a lot of different kinds of cancers, and uh, we cure a lot of them. And in fact, uh, we have gotten recent data that suggests a very, uh, very exciting, actually, data that the uh, odds of dying of cancer in this country have been dropping probably by as much as uh, 25% over the last 30 years. Um, and that's by a combination of screening and, and judicial application of uh, both old therapies and new ones and giving them in better ways. So we, we do cure a lot of cancers. The real question is, when are we going to cure all cancers? Uh, when are we going to cure enough cancers? And enough, in my opinion, is all. And that's the big issue. And there's a lot of research going on. A lot of more research needs to be done. Um, reducing the odds of dying of cancer by a certain percentage of quarter is great, but it should be by 100%. So we need to work together as a society between the researchers and the clinical researchers and the laboratory researchers and our patients uh, all together, uh, being willing to support the, the cost it will take to do this. I'm shameless. Uh, we need the money to support this. This research is very expensive. So the NIH budget has been going up over the last three or four years. We're extraordinarily uh, appreciative of that. The, the government's been very generous, but that's after 10 years of flat funding. So when you filter in inflation with that, we actually lost about a quarter of the funding for the National Cancer Institute over the last decade until about three or four years ago. It's been going up about $2 billion a year to the NIH, and within that then money comes uh, to all the institutes, including the National Cancer Institute, and that's where our major source of funding is. That research is a great investment, and that's what's going to lead us to cure more cancers. So it's a long-winded answer to something I feel very passionately about. We're only going to cure cancer by doing good research, not by accident or uh, 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 it doesn't happen magically. How do you respond to um, people that question whether um, the money that is raised that goes towards uh, cancer research is actually making a difference. Uh, you know, you hear stories about um, at least that um, I give money to X organization, 
um, for cancer research, but how do I know that that's actually making a difference? Yeah, let, let's separate two things. The one I just talked about, which is your tax dollars going in to support the National Institute of Health and National Cancer Institute. That money is spent very responsibly with lots of oversight and uh, all, maybe even too much uh, mm -hmm. peer review because it's so hard to get grants. Right now, for example, the odds of having your grant approved in the National Cancer Institute is 1 in 10. And I would ask anybody listening to this, would you take a job where you have a 10% chance of getting paid? Probably not. Now, our young people do get paid, but the point here is, is that those are the grants that keep them alive and academics doing research. And it's gotten to be very frustrating uh, if you don't have a very good chance of getting funded. So that leads to the second source of funds, which is philanthropy. And I agree with you. You have to be very careful, Scott. Um, there are... Um, um, uh, fly by night and, and uh, your charlatans out there that start foundations that you can't trust and they take the money and mm -hmm. don't do good things with it. But there are a lot of groups out there that do great work. And there are ways to look up on the internet whether they are uh, respected foundations and whether they, uh, how much money they spend on administration as opposed to giving out the grants and who they give the grants to and how it's used. And um, so it's not that hard to figure that out. And the money you give, if you give it to a really legitimate organization, is used well. I mean, the American Cancer Society, for example, uh, the, uh, my own ASCO, the American Society of Clinical Oncology, the American Association of Cancer Research, uh, I could go on and on. There are a number of, of these um, that use the money to support really f important and groundbreaking research. Furthermore, there, there are some less well-known but uh, private philanthropic organizations um, or people who just want to give money to an institution where that money actually can be used on really innovative, you know, shooting for the moon kind of experiments. So, for example, if I want to get a grant funded through the federal government, I almost have to have the research done before I put in the grant because the the peer review is so strict, and the people look at it and say, well, I'm not sure it can be done, and blah, 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 all of which is okay. That means we're really funding first-rate stuff out of that, but it, it means you can't really take a chance. You can't put a grant in that says, you know, I think uh, cutting people's arms off is going to cure cancer. I'm making a joke. We're not going to cut people's arms <laughs> off, but, you know, real, really innovative shots in the dark to see if there's something there. So we have uh, uh, people who give philanthropy to the University of Michigan to support. In my case, it's the breast cancer program. And I tell them lots of times I use that to support young people or people who aren't in the field who I think have a pretty good idea that may never pan out. But if somebody doesn't put money into it, we'll never know that. And you don't know a seed will grow unless you plant it. Um, my favorite story, uh, just two weeks ago, I had one of my young people in my office with what I think is a really good idea she turned in a grant, and I understand they funded three people, and she was fourth. At least mm -hmm. that's what we've heard. And, you know, how am I going to do this? How am I going to do this? Woe is me. That evening, I went to a fundraising uh, um, celebration of some people in the local area who have given us well over sixty or $70,000 over the last few years. Uh, and I told them, this is the kind of money that I can say to a woman like that, I still want you to turn in the next grant. I still want you to go back in and, and, and keep working on the peer-reviewed grants, but this is going to keep you alive until you do it. And, and that's 
that's a great use of that money. So that even if it's not a successful project, it's a successful person. And it's those people who, who will do successful projects down the road. I'm enormously devoted to making sure that we have young people who come in the field and stay in the field because they're the ones who are going to make a difference now in the next 10 years. So you had mentioned that um, mortality rates uh, for cancers have decreased uh, over the last 23 or so years. Um, does that mean that cancer is moving more to be a uh, chronic disease? Yeah, let me uh, once again jump in. Cancer is not cancer. Uh, some cancers are, some are not. For example, testicular cancer, which in 1970 uh, had a 90% mortality rate if you had metastatic testicular cancer. By 1980, it had a 10% mortality rate. And in fact, if you have metastatic testicular cancer and you get the chemotherapy that cures people now and it all goes away, if it hasn't come back within two years, you're probably cured. So that's not a chronic disease. That's big bang Mm -hmm. and we treat those guys right to the brink of death almost um, because we're not trying to make them feel better. We're trying to cure them and we we know we can do that. But there are other cancers that are increasingly, that have been notoriously difficult to treat, frankly, that have become increasingly more like chronic diseases now. Uh, there have been people who have taken offense to saying, well, it's getting, it's getting to be like hypertension or diabetes. I agree. Mm-hmm. It's not like hypertension or diabetes. It's yeah. more profoundly frightening and, and, and uh, impact on your life. But nonetheless, for example, I do breast cancer work. When patients develop a recurrent breast cancer outside of their breast, again, a metastasis, I tell them it's bad news and good news. And the bad news is I think the worst news I can tell a patient, which is we're probably not going to cure this. And try as we might, and we keep trying, and we keep doing more research. We keep trying to do things where I don't have to say that to a patient anymore. If that's the case, what's the good news? Well, the good news is it's metastatic breast cancer. And by that, I mean we have an armamentarium of treatments that 30, 35 years ago when I started in this field, I couldn't have even imagined. And we have converted it in many ways into a chronic disease, that instead of having a, a lifespan expected of a couple of years from the time I have that talk with patients, it's now much longer than that. Mm-hmm. And for some aspects of breast cancer, really long. Uh, and so it doesn't mean we've cured it, but I tell patients my goal of therapy in that case, uh, outside of a clinical trial where we're trying to change that, that discussion, is to keep people feeling as good as they can for as long as they can, and that means picking therapy most likely to work with the fewest side effects. Um, and we're pretty good at that. And we've been pretty good at that in breast cancer for a number of years, but we've got so many new things now. The new anti-estrogen therapies, all the new therapies against HER2, the, another molecule that cancers make. And now we even have therapies besides chemotherapy that work against cancers that don't make estrogen receptor or HER2, so-called triple negative cancers. The same thing is happening in lung cancer. My successor in ASCO, Dr. Bruce Johnson from Harvard, is a lung cancer doctor. When you're the ASCO president, you give um, a presidential address. Um, I happen to give mine on all the things that our society can do for people, but he gave his on lung cancer, and he made the point that we've done exactly what you just asked. We've taken metastatic lung cancer and not as well as we'd like, and we're not carrying people right and left, but in many respects, we've turned it into, in, in many parts of lung cancer, into chronic diseases, where either taking some pills or the new immunotherapies 
can help people get to feeling better without a lot of side effects and live pretty normal lives. Um, and I have to tell you, I never thought I would say that about metastatic lung cancer in my career. So that's been great. And we're making progress like that in many of the diseases, uh, not as fast as we ought to, but uh, there are a lot of people with metastatic disease who are living pretty decent lives um, on therapy with some side effects, but still getting along. What would be even better is if we could prevent their getting metastatic disease in the first place. What could be even better is keep them from getting cancer in the first place, but in the absence of that, we'll keep making progress in the way we are now. So you just kind of shared a um, story about um, your successor at ASCO and talking about lung cancer and how it's um, progressed in those treatments from where it was to where it is now. How have you, in your career, seen cancer treatments um, progress um, as well as, uh, you know, even some of the newer ones we hear about, like immunotherapy? Yeah, so uh, that raises one of my favorite jokes, which is when I'm asked this question, I often say, I wish I was 30 years old again, because there's so much excitement in our field. There are a lot of other reasons I wish I was 30 years old again. <laughs> I can't run anymore. I can't, you know, but, uh, but having said that, there's so much excitement. And I think the new young doctors coming into the field are doing so because of this. Um, in the old days, the, the, the standby treatment for most cancers was chemotherapy. I actually trained with the people who first started giving chemotherapy. They were some of my mentors were the first guys who put one and one together and got two and saw cures. Very exciting, but that's a, chemotherapy is tough to take. Um, breast cancer has for a long time, and prostate cancer too, used what we called hormone therapy, which is anti-estrogen or anti-testosterone therapy. And uh, that's a little easier to take usually, so that's been good. And that set the stage, I think, for what we now call targeted therapy. And Targeted therapy, unlike chemotherapy, which is kind of dumb therapy, you give it to people and hope it works. Targeted therapy is you understand the biology of the cancer and you give stuff that attacks what's making that cancer behave poorly. Mm -hmm. So, for example, with anti-estrogen therapy in breast cancer, um, we know that uh, about 80% of cancer breast cancers make the estrogen receptor. I tell patients that's like the gas tank in the car. The nucleus is like the engine, and estrogen's like the gas. <laughs> and we have ways to screw that up. We can keep people from making estrogen. We can blow up the oil well, if you will, or we can prevent the the um, uh, refinery from working and and uh, things like that. We, uh, uh, I tell them tamoxifen is like putting water in the gas tank. It gets in there and screws it up. Um, and uh, HER2. So, for example, it wasn't discovered until 18. 1983 or 4, by 87, we knew it was a bad thing to have in cancers. By the early 90s, we had an antibody that's now called Herceptin. Trastuzumab is the generic name. We now have six or seven different active therapies against HER2. Uh, we have patients who, I think, 20 years ago would have been dead within a year or two, who look like they may be cured by using these drugs. Mm -hmm. We now moved Herceptin up early in the adjuvant setting and reduced mortality substantially in patients who have that. Lung cancer, it used to be the only treatment for metastatic lung cancer was combination chemotherapy. Now somewhere between a third or more of patients 
we can find genetic abnormalities for which there are drugs that attack that genetic abnormality and are quite effective with very few side effects. So this is called targeted therapy. In fact, now there are big trials going on in this country sponsored by our tax dollars <laughs> uh, in which patients have a biopsy done and have their cancer sequenced. It's called next-gen sequencing. Uh, there are various uh, implications of how to do that, but anyway. And then to see whether or not, regardless of whether the cancer started, whether it's breast or lung or colon, if they have the abnormality, maybe that drug would work no matter what. We're finding that's not true, actually, that the context in which it started uh, is still important. If it's breast cancer, it's still different than colon cancer, even though it has the same mutation. But nonetheless, it's still broadened our ability to treat patients, and all of us have seen patients where we would never have imagined they would respond to drug X. We did next-gen sequencing. We found mutation number one, which drug X hits, and mm -hmm. put them together and had really nice responses. So this is a very exciting area. The second is the immunotherapy breakthroughs. And so people have been wanting our immune system to go after our own cells for well over 100 years. It dates back to the really 1870s, 1880s. Um, but Evolution has not wanted that to happen for millions of years. And the reason we can all sit here and be healthy mm -hmm. is because our immune system is designed to go after invading organisms, and we have other systems inside of us to keep us from getting cancer. And there's a firewall between that, and that's good. It's why we don't all have lupus and rheumatoid arthritis. And so most immunotherapy research up until about 10 or 15 years ago was kind of beating our head against the wall. And about 10 or 15 years ago, some really smart people figured out how to break through that firewall. I, I tell patients, it's like if you're a Harry Potter fan, our, our, our own cells, and therefore our cancer cells, which are our own cells, have cloaks of invisibility. And we figured out how to, we didn't, somebody smarter mm -hmm. than me figured out how to break through it. That led to uh, two scientists who discovered that winning the Nobel Prize this last fall, the fall of 2018, Absolutely deservedly so. A wonderful prize for these guys. And not only did they find out how to break through the firewall, they found drugs that could do that and also combined with drugs we already use. The, probably the first big hit that made me realize there was something going on is we saw data that 20% of patients who had metastatic melanoma, which was always probably the toughest thing for us to treat, those patients didn't do well and passed away in a hurry, 20% of those patients may be cured with, immuno, with the new immunotherapies, these their so-called checkpoint inhibitors. Non-small cell lung cancer, again, what I was just talking about with precision medicine, notoriously difficult to treat. Chemotherapy was the only option. I don't think those patients are being cured now, but they're being turned into people with chronic diseases, if you will, with the use of immunotherapy and so on and so forth. And we're getting more drugs. We're finding more things that cause the cloaks of invisibility so we can break through those as well. Mm -hmm. We're combining them. That's extending the therapy into diseases that didn't traditionally be immunoresponsive diseases. It's a very exciting field. I wish I was 30 years old again because <laughs> it's, it's really exciting to see it move so fast. There's a the downside. Um, just saw a publication in the last six months that 1% of all patients who get these drugs die from the therapy. They're not benign. On the other hand, many patients who get them have no side effects. And so we're trying to figure out why some people get horrible side effects and other people do great and everything in between. 
uh, that's a whole other area of very active research, and, and I'm, I'm really excited about that field. In fact, I'm excited about both of those fields um, because they build on things we already suspected, but now we know how to do it. We've got better tools in the toolbox to get to these things. So um, what's next? I don't know. Um, I suspect it'll be something I hadn't thought of, but I'm sure it is. <laughs> and that's why we need to keep young people in the field, because they need to keep thinking about how to make things better. Can you tell us a little bit how you've seen changes in um, both care and treatment for cancer patients? Yeah, it's really been a remarkable run for me. Um, I graduated from medical school in 1979, and I finished my oncology fellowship in 1985. So I've either been in this 35 or 40 years, depending on when you want to start the clock. Um, and during that time, it's just been amazing progress to me. Uh, let's stick with breast cancer because that's what I know the mm -hmm. most. Um, in 1979, there was little, no evidence that screening was a good thing to do. Um, uh, adjuvant chemotherapy and adjuvant endocrine therapy being anti-estrogen therapy uh, were under trials, but nobody had really shown that giving stuff early better than late. The surgery was horrific. Um, the surgeons were doing radical mastectomies uh, with the feeling that that probably wasn't enough, so they needed to put radiation on top of that. And people had, uh, you know, the surgery right down to their ribs and, and then got big swollen arms from the radiation. Uh, we didn't have any anti-nausea medications in those days, so if we did give chemotherapy, we just put them in the hospital and gave them barbiturates because uh, there just wasn't any anti-nausea medication. Those really didn't work. They didn't keep people from throwing up. They just kept them from remembering how awful it was, so they'd still come back and take some more. It was pretty, I don't want to say barbaric, but pretty primitive. Nowadays, um, in breast cancer, I'll start out by saying we've seen the odds of dying of breast cancer in this country drop by uh, uh, somewhere between a third and a half. And what I don't mean there is case fatality rate. In other words, if I diagnose a bunch of things that we call cancer but we're never actually going to hurt people and the same number of people die, then we'll still have a lower case fatality rate. This is true. 100,000 women walking down the street, never had breast cancer. What do they die from in the next year? And the odds of being at breast cancer have dropped by almost a half, not quite. And why is that? It's because we've got nine trials showing that Screening is better than no screening and reduces the odds of dying. Uh, not by as much as we like, maybe by about a fifth, but still worth doing. It's because um, we have proven that giving adjuvant, and by adjuvant I mean early systemic therapy, and by systemic therapy I mean chemotherapy and anti-estrogen therapy, and now anti-HER2 therapy, uh, reduces the odds of dying considerably. And it's because we have convinced most women that it's not as awful as they think, and they need to come see us. None of these things works if we never see the patient. But, for example, now we went from radical mastectomy to modified radical mastectomy to what we call breast-preserving therapy, so that 50% or more patients who have a new breast cancer don't even need to have a mastectomy. They have a lumpectomy and radiation, and that's as or more effective than having a mastectomy. That's terrific. Um, and uh, we now have terrific anti-nausea medications, uh, we don't put anybody in the hospital to give them chemotherapy anymore. In fact, the only people we put in the hospital are the ones that we have failed. Um, and and uh, almost all of our treatment is in the outpatient setting. And while, yeah, occasionally somebody gets sick, I never say never, 
it's pretty unusual. Uh, most patients don't get sick. Most patients don't get, uh, by most, I mean 99% don't get infections. You used to hear the old days, you get mm -hmm. chemotherapy, you're going to have an infection. Almost not true anymore. Um, and um, uh, people work through while they're getting the, the chemotherapy and stuff. It, it's really been remarkable. Uh, and then even if their cancer does come back, unfortunately if it does, the treatments we have, we talked earlier about converting this into a chronic disease. And um, uh, it's really fun to be an oncologist yeah. because you get to know the patients and you've seen all the things that have happened and all the advantages. I mean, we really owe a lot to our forefathers who had the courage to do the crazy things they did mm -hmm. and to challenge dogma and not just accept the fact that we can't do anything. Um, uh, and I have enormous respect for these guys. Some of them trained me. Um, uh, uh, and what they did and how they did it. And also, I have to say, for the American uh, population, uh, the American populace has been willing to put in the tax dollars to support our research, been willing to support uh, our foundations to do the research and, and get along and participate in the trials. It takes an enormous amount of uh, courage and also extra work for a patient to be in a clinical trial. It's tougher than just getting regular therapy. And I always tell patients, um, we'll do whatever you want to do, and I rarely hit people below the belt, but I'd like you to be in this trial for two reasons. It might be better for you, but we don't know that. That's why it's a trial. It's at least standard of care. Um, and moreover, almost every word I've told that patient before I get to that point has come out because women before them have been in clinical mm -hmm. trials, and what they will do, whether the study's positive or negative, will help the next group of patients. And people say, yes, I agree, I'll buy into that. Which is, I think, just really terrific. I mean, that's you know, why we've been able to get the things done we have. Wish we could do better. Wish we could go move faster. I'll tell you a cute story, and now I'll shut up. <laughs> so the cute story is that in patients who have uh, uh, S1 receptor positive breast cancer, we have seen the odds of their cancer coming back get lower and lower and lower through the years. So we ran a trial in which we have something called a 21 gene recurrence score that if it's low, it tells us that patient doesn't need chemotherapy. And if it's high, she does. And we had an intermediate score, and we didn't know what to do. So we were running a great big trial, a nationwide trial. Um, the results of that have now been published, but anyway, this is three or four years ago. And one of my patients had an intermediate score. And I said, you know, I don't know the right answer here because we're doing a trial where half those women get chemotherapy and half don't. And if I knew the answer, we wouldn't be doing that trial. And she said, Dr. Hayes, I, I, I need to know, when are the results of that trial going to be out? <laughs> and without thinking, I said, well, the problem is you're all doing so well, we can't get an answer as fast as we thought we could. Well, as soon as I said that, I said, Wait a minute, that's not a problem. The good <laughs> news is you're all doing so well. It's taking longer to, for us to see the results of our trials because our estimates were made on how people were doing in the 1980s and 90s, and the people in the 2000s are doing better than they used to because of all this research and all these benefits. So it's a good problem to have uh, that, that we're really helping people get along better, live better, and live longer. We hear more and more, and I don't know if it's the advent of social media or what, but we hear more and more about uh, people having cancer and talking about cancer. Are, are the incidence rates going? We talked about mortality going down, but are incidence rates going up? Yes, I hear this quite a bit. Oh, it seems like everybody in my neighborhood has breast cancer. Everybody in my bridge club has cancer now. Yeah. And, and actually, 
there are two or three reasons for this happening. Uh, one of those is we talk about cancer. When I was a kid, uh, it was embarrassing to have cancer. And, and uh, I grew up in a good God-fearing Methodist family, and, and uh, at dinner table, we weren't allowed to talk about women who were pregnant because that had certain implications, and we never talked about women who had cancer um, or anybody who had cancer. Well, you know, a selected group of celebrities went public 30 or 40 years ago and changed that. Betty Ford, of course, is one of the more famous ones from Michigan, and um, uh, you probably remember Katie Couric had a colonoscopy mm -hmm. on camera because her husband died of colon cancer. Yep. Um, Ronald Reagan had colon cancer, and as president of the United States, admitted he had colon cancer, mm -hmm. and, and that, you know, changed a lot of things. So all of those things were good in terms of just bringing cancer out of the closet. But what that meant was you you probably knew other people had cancer before that. You just never talked about it, or you didn't know what they had. They died of consumption or old age, so to speak. The second thing that's happened is that— Actually, uh, if I can interrupt you, it's funny you say that because— um, when my dad was diagnosed with, with cancer, he was asked, anyone in your family have cancer? And he said, oh, no. And I said, what about grandpa? Because he actually had um, uh, that uh, oat cell uh, lung cancer. And um, he's like, oh, he died of a heart attack. Yeah. <laughs> he died of cancer. So, yeah, it's it's So that's the that, point. So. People, you know, there's no shame in having cancer. Uh, it, it's a shame you have cancer, but there's no shame in having cancer. The second is that uh, we are an aging population. And uh, things that used to kill us before we got old enough to have cancer, and cancer is on the most part a disease of old age, have decreased substantially too. That's another good problem we have. Coronary artery disease has dropped substantially. Um, uh, have you ever had, do you know anybody that's had tuberculosis? No. Right, okay. <laughs> Near my hometown, there was a tuberculosis sanitarium, and it was full when I was little. Okay, yeah. it's gone. It doesn't even. It's not even a building now, and and that's kind of the point. Um, you you probably never met my polio. Okay, I have. Uh, yeah. You know those things. They're all gone, and that's great. But what that means is our population is getting older, and cancer uh, doesn't occur in very many kids. Certainly, the pediatric cancer occurs, but it's awfully rare. Part of that is again evolution. Is that our species exist because we reproduce. So if we got cancer before we reproduce and die, we're not going to reproduce so we're not around. So there are a whole bunch of biological genetic issues that help us, that keep us from getting cancer when we're young. Um, as we get older, those begin to break down. And the third then are environmental exposures. And, the, and although a lot of those have actually gone away because of many of the environmental concerns that we've had, back in the 70s and the Clean Water Act and the Clean Air Act and all that kind of stuff. but uh, and, and the smoking has dropped. Something like 70 or 80% of adults smoked in the 1950s. That's down to about 20%. Should be zero, but it's down to about 20%. But those things also kick off cancers. And, and so uh, I think those three things together make it sound like there's more cancer than there used to be. The final thing is screening. Now, screening's good. So you think that, you know, mm -hmm. oh, what's he going to say about screening? Well, it's because we're finding cancers that we didn't used to find. Now, we're finding some cancers that we would have known about anyway because they would have occurred later, and those are the ones we hope we do find mm -hmm. early and treat before they become really uh, lethal cancers. But we also know with screening we're finding a lot of things we call cancer that probably are not would have never become clinically evident cancers in a patient's lifetime. So that patient is labeled as having had a cancer, 
but probably would never have had cancer, and mm-hmm. so probably that's not a fair label, but that increases the incidence as well. And it's hard, for, I think, for the average layperson to distinguish that kind of cancer from the cancer that is going to kill somebody. So, for example, in breast cancer, if a patient has ductal carcinoma in situ, frankly speaking, that's really a pre-malignancy. It's called cancer, but it's it's not really a cancer. And a lot of us have wished we could change that, but we aren't able to. So that patient's told she has cancer, and she goes to work or whatever she does and tells her friends, I have cancer. And they say, oh, you have cancer? That's awful. And I wish people didn't have this. I'm not downplaying mm-hmm. the impact. But it's it's a condition that's a precursor for cancer, increases your risk for real cancer, but it's called cancer. Mm-hmm. So now you think your friend has cancer. So that increases what you hear about it. So I think the three things... One is we talk more about it. Two is the aging population. Um, and three is uh, screening and more visibility of cancer, and so therefore it's it's more apparent, and we think there, it's gone up. Um, there are some cancers that have truly increased in incidence uh, for reasons we don't fully understand, but there are others that have dropped, again, for reasons we don't understand um, in, in this country, and, and uh, that's, what, that's why God gave us epidemiologists to figure all this out. <laughs> Well, Dan, I really appreciate the time today. As we kind of wrap up, where do you kind of see cancer going in the next five to ten years? Oh, my crystal ball is getting (laughs) cloudy. (laughs) Um, Certainly, in the short run, I think I know where we're going. I think the precision medicine story is going to get uh, hammered down better and better. It's kind of been the Wild West the last five years, and people are beginning to understand when to use it and where to use it and how. What we need there is better training. Uh, In the last 12 months of, well, in the 12 months of 2018, there were 60 drugs approved for cancer by the FDA. There is no human being who could keep track of 60 new drugs. Uh, So if you're an average oncologist in a community setting taking care of all kinds of cancers, I don't know how you could possibly keep up with this. So we need to help people learn how to learn. We need to help people learn information, and I think that's going to be a big push forward. Uh, The other is this precision medicine thing. There are 15,000 genes in the human genome. Each of them has thousands of base pairs. Do the math. We're talking about billions of pieces of information. And you were trained how to listen to, you weren't, I was trained how to listen to <laughs> hearts and lungs and diagnose, you know, uh, heart failure. I wasn't trained to do bioinformatics and, and uh, next-gen sequencing and stuff. And, and neither is almost any other clinical oncologist. We need to help them learn how to use this stuff, help them learn how to apply it, really help them learn how to learn it. And I don't mean they have to have it in their head anymore. Uh, you know, fortunately, the younger generation knows that they can learn by Googling things. Mm-hmm. My generation felt we had to memorize everything and spit it back out. We laugh. My generation, uh, it's called pimping. We would be on rounds, and the senior doctor would say, you know, what's the differential diagnosis of blue sclera? And we'd go, oh, I just read that somebody. You know, you list off a bunch of stuff, and if you got it right, you felt proud, and if you got it wrong, you were totally ashamed. <laughs> I can't do that anymore because I say, what's the differential diagnosis of blue sclera? Within 10 seconds, the iPhones are out, and they come back and they read it back to me, <laughs> which is actually great. <laughs> uh, you know, so it's just too much to memorize. So I think that's another area where the field's going to go is helping us help 
the oncologist help our patients, and that, that there's a lot to that. And ASCO is very interested in that. I actually think the curriculum is going to have to change in how we teach our fellows. The second thing is the immunotherapy, and I think this is really booming business. Uh, again, we talked a little bit about finding uh, new checkpoint inhibitors besides the two systems we already know about, and that those are starting to already being reported. New drugs against the ones we know about, new drugs against the new ones, better ways to, to avoid or treat the toxicities, uh, putting them together so that they're more effective than any one together, putting them with already standard therapies like chemotherapy and breast cancer, endocrine therapy and HER2 therapy. All those things are huge opportunities, and, and I'm really excited about that. So I think that's where the field's going to go. Um, the third thing I think is related to the local therapies. It's been remarkable in breast cancer. I talked about going from radical to modified radical to breast preserving therapy. Um, for example, the, in the old days, the surgeons would take out 70 or 80 lymph nodes. Now they take out one or two. Uh, and maybe we don't even need to do that. And, and again, this is true almost across all of cancers. Can we do less surgery and get the same amount? This is called de-escalation. We're also asking those questions about what I do, systemic therapy, what the radiation oncologists do. All of these areas are areas of de-escalation. Um, and perhaps even going into really novel ways of doing this stuff without ever cutting anybody and that sort of thing. So I think that's another area where the field's going. I think the final area the field's going is in economics. And there are two really important issues there. One is the cost of drugs. And um, all the great drugs in the world don't do any good if people can't afford to take them. And we've got to do something about the cost of drugs. It's very complex. It's much more complex than just saying, oh, you greedy pharmaceutical companies, drop your prices. Uh, we don't want to kill the goose that's laying golden eggs. 60 new drugs in cancer in the last 12 months. You know, they're not all blockbusters, but that's a lot of new drugs. And that didn't happen by accident. It happened because of uh, hard work and lots of money going into it. I'm not a shill for the drug companies, but we want to be sure that that kind of progress continues and moves forward. Uh, on the other hand, um, the drug prices are just astronomical. And it's not just in oncology, but many of the oncology drugs are just too expensive to give people. And we all we even have a term for that now, financial toxicity. Mm -hmm. You know, we have patients not taking drugs, not because they're making it, it's making their hair fall out or throwing up or whatever, it's because they can't afford it. Well, that's heartbreaking. The second part of this economic issue then is how we pay for healthcare in this country. And um, the Affordable Care Act, in my own opinion, was a real step forward. It covered a lot of people who used to just walk in and get free care, which meant they waited until they were too sick to really be helped, and then we would have to write it off as a hospital. Uh, many of those people got covered. I'm proud of the fact that even within a Republican administration, the state of Michigan um, uh, accepted the ACA and, and uh, 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 went for it with Medicare and that sort of thing. So. Um, that's great. Um, it's still, though, a work in progress. Uh, it's been almost 10 years since the ACA was passed. It's not perfect. It has some huge flaws in it. Um, it probably overreached in many respects. But I think that we can't continue to pretend that medicine is a, a free market business. It's not like you want a new car, so you decide 
how much you can mm-hmm. afford and whether you want a blue car or a red car or a big car or a little car or a truck. <laughs> you know, that's your choice. And the salesman tries to sell you the most yeah. expensive one, but you know what you want and what you can afford and what the value is. In medicine, your salesman, uh, you pretty much believe them wholeheartedly because it's your doctor. Yeah. And um, uh, and on top of that, uh, there there aren't that many choices, and you pretty much got to take what you're offered, and somebody else is paying the bills for you. So it it's it's screwy right now. Mm-hmm. It's the only word I can think of, and it's grown up the way it has. Um, I'm not a wide-eyed socialist, but on the other hand, I do think we need to resolve a lot of these issues so that patients who have cancer can get the kinds of treatments and the progress that we've been talking about today. Uh, pills do no good in the bottle. They only help you inside you, and so we need to figure out how to, how to get there. There's actually a really great map. You know those, those um, voting heat maps, county mm-hmm. by county, where it's blue and red and stuff? So there are maps like that now for cancer mortality. And what's frightening about them is that in some states, there will be one county that's light yellow surrounded by counties that are bright red. Okay, Now that's either epidemiology. The people in the yellow county didn't smoke much and the people in the red counties did, so lung cancer is killing mm-hmm. people. Okay, I don't believe that. I think it's access to care and that the people in the yellow were probably in an urban area that was uh, you know, lots of people with jobs and had health mm-hmm. insurance and the reds were probably more rural areas where they didn't have access to care or the doctors weren't there to take care of them. Well, we need to fix that. That's just ridiculous. So ASCO is working hard to do that. And my, during my presidency, we spent a lot of time worrying about these issues. And, and um, I know this is more than you asked for, but I think this is one area where the field has to go so that we can get these treatments to people. Uh, no matter where they are. Uh, I hope people come to Ann Arbor and get treatment at Michigan Medicine because we do a great job. But not everybody in Michigan can get to Ann Arbor for their therapy. We need to be sure that the people outside of Ann Arbor get access to high-quality oncology care the same way they would as if they could drive in and park in Ann Arbor. So um, these are the challenges. So so those those key areas actually then would be... um, the um, access to care through um, trying to help fix financial toxicity, um, getting uh, more access to um, um, other treatments such as immunotherapy and um, having uh, precision medicine as as a as a as a treatment option, um, and then also um, I would say you know when we talk about the large quantity of drugs that were created in the last year, you know. That all goes back to even clinical trials and being having access to some of those. Yeah, we're going to come around to clinical trials to no matter what you ask yeah. me. Uh, so. you know, it's the only way we make progress. I have to say the one other issue, frankly, is uh, uh, accessibility in terms of workforce. So there, it's pretty clear there aren't enough doctors in this country. And one reason why is we've limited the number of med schools and the number of doctors who are, tra- who are educated. It's also pretty clear there aren't enough oncologists when you get to my own thing. Um, and the question is, how do we do that, and how do we keep their not just their training while they're training, I talked about that earlier, but once they're already trained. Mm-hmm. So there's a whole effort to get, for example, people who might not be doctors and medical oncologists but would still be able to provide good care with oversight 
nurse practitioners, physician assistants. Uh, ASCO thinks this is all a great idea, and I do too. Uh, and we've been using nurse practitioners and PAs internally for years, but I think they can help in areas in the counties that you know don't have an oncologist, mm -hmm. but but maybe it's our itinerant oncologist who's there on Monday and uh, the nurse practitioners there on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, whatever. The second is to provide guidelines and pathways. And this is controversial because there are doctors who feel that they shouldn't have someone else tell them how to practice because they know how to practice because they're doctors. Mm -hmm. When I hear that, I always say, when you were a doctor as an intern, did you not have anybody tell you how to practice? Well, yeah, the resident told me how or my attending told me how. I said, okay, so how's that different now? You know. If somebody knows more about a topic than I do and tells me how to apply that topic to take better care of my patients, that's not offensive to me. That's that's how I learned as an intern. It's how I learn now. Um, and and so what we need to do is get those guidelines out, get those um, uh, pathways out, so that doctors who are in practice who are faced with a multitude of different cancers, again, 50 new drugs in the last year, 60 new drugs in the last year, all this next-gen sequencing, all these new things have access to a way that there is a level of treatment that is relatively standard across the country. Now, there's still always going to be doctors who have better judgment than other doctors. There's still always going to be doctors who are a little bit ahead of the curve. You know, I'm not a fool, but I think we can raise the bar so every patient has at least access to what we would consider to be a minimal standard. Uh, by uh, pathways and guidelines and paying doctors for adhering to those pathways and guidelines or finding out why they're not. And if they're not, change the pathways and guidelines if they're not good. And I'll say it again, I'm very proud of ASCO, as you can tell. Mm -hmm. But ASCO is working hard on this, and so are people at Michigan Medicine. Uh, there's a lot going on, working closely with, with some of the insurance companies in the state. Um, I really am optimistic about our ability to, to do this. The doctors, and I'm pointing the finger at myself, mm -hmm. have to get over it and accept us and, and, you know, make it happen. Instead of grumbling, work with it. Make it happen. Make it your success. And we're all for that. Well, great. Then I really appreciate the time today. Uh, great information and um, keep up the good work. My pleasure. It's been a great to talk to you. Thanks for the opportunity. Thank you for listening. And tell us what you think of this podcast by rating and reviewing us. If you have suggestions for additional topics, you can send them to Cancer Center at med.umich.edu or message us on Twitter at umrogocancer. You can continue to explore the three P's of cancer by visiting rogocancercenter.org.